Zach, I've seen something that's changed my life. No way. I'm excited to hear about it. So there is a city that you know well. It's called Branson, Missouri. Hometown, baby. In this city, um, one of my camp directors, his name's Adam Martin. Shout out. Graduated from Texas A&M. Whoop. Gig those ags. Gig them. And one of the things he does is he kind of like manages like Airbnbs. Okay. And so like he'll manage it for other people, whatever. One of the Airbnbs that he has. Okay. Two stories. With a basement. Uncommon in Texas. Okay. Very common in Missouri. Yeah. That's one thing I was so shocked about because we moved into a house with two stories. Yep. And one, it's the bottom floor is really just the ground floor. And I referenced it as the basement to you. Yeah. And you were so thrown off. I was like, dude, what? What's the we basement? We don't have those here. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I mean, we just build underground, I guess, in Missouri. Anyway. Yeah. Side Anyways. They, they have a kitchen island, common, mm-hmm. nothing out of the ordinary, until you open one of the cabinet doors. Oh, my gosh. And Spices? You, you are greeted by a tube slide. Dude. That you can just slip your little biscuits into <laughs> and slide down into the, go? Into the basement, like, entertainment room. Like the TV, the like the games, like everything's down there. It's wow. just like the fun room. There's stairs if you're boring or oh, want to go up. Lame. But there is literally a tube slide in this house. And it's got me thinking, if I ever build my own house, mm-hmm. there will be so many awesome things. Yeah. And I whispered so it because that's how sure I am. Yeah. So many things that like either just your family knows – like just even a secret room, yes. like a secret library. Yes. You know, there's a bookshelf. You got to push it in. Door mm. opens. That's the classic. Yeah. That's the classic That's is I was thinking even a having a bookshelf, a mirror that you just have yeah. like two little suction cup things that you yes. pull off, slide in. We we need some ideas of what the coolest thing could be yeah. or that you've maybe as a listener even seen. Yeah, or in your own home. If you've seen something amazing. And you're listening on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Leave, Leave a, a five-star review yep. and tell us about that awesome thing in the house. If, if you're on Spotify, just shoot us an email. Find you us know. on the gram. Yeah. NXT Gen Leader Podcast. Yes, that's right. We'll, we would love to hear oh, yeah. that. We love interacting with people. We do. I, I'm trying to think of what else. So you and I yep. thought about this. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? This is uh, off the cuff. Yes. So our Remind sophomore me. year. Yeah, I think our sophomore year. We were looking into turning in our, in our oh, bedroom yeah, yeah, yeah. into a ball pit. We we were, I mean, to the point of like we pricing bought ball pit a lot balls. Of balls yeah. But it was just, we were sophomores and we did not yeah. have enough money yeah. to fund it. But we we literally almost we made, have enough money man, we should have done it. <laughs> I know. We almost made our entire room oh. ball pit balls. Yeah, I mean, we're in bunks, like we right. just slept above it right. and just get out. And then we were going to put up literally like doggy door fences I, at our closet so yep. we could get dressed. And then you'd have to walk through the balls. Dude. I <sighs> mean, tell me a better morning I, than, than waist-high ball pit balls. Just <laughs> you pushing them around. It'd be thousands of dollars. Yeah. But those would be dollars well spent. I think that is one of my biggest regrets of college. Yeah. Because that's memorable. That's that would cool. have been amazing. I've heard someone say – someone great said to be more – Oh, gosh, how'd it go? Is that how they said it, that great person? Yes, that great person. They said, to be be more memorable, you have to be less reasonable. Yeah. We should have been less reasonable. We should have. We we listened to reason To be fair, though, it wasn't that we were reasonable. It's that we were looking at the funds, and we just did not have it. Finances were tight. We tried to, to like, get some secondhand ball pit balls, which gets a little sketch. Yeah. 
But yeah. you it, can't go black market on the ball pit. Ball. I know. You really can't. You have to go first party, first party purchase. You should have done it. What, I mean, what else? Secret room, secret tube slide. Yeah. Fireman's pole, kind of lame. Cool idea, yeah. but it's so in the open. It's just like the key oh, yeah, is yeah, I have a fireman pole. Like, all right, cool. Like, what do you do? Slide I went down. to a guy's house one time and his bedroom was behind a bookshelf. You That's like, cool. You pulled the bookshelf open. And it was literally like basically the bookshelf was almost glued to the door. Like, it wasn't actually glued, right. but it was just basically like pulled it. You couldn't see anything. Pull it. And then there's this like big room. It was kind of like, I guess, previously like a little attic thing. That's cool. They got turned to have like high ceilings. Yeah, I remember thinking. You, I don't even know if he was, but I instantly was like, dang, this guy's so rich. <laughs> like, you don't even have to actually be yeah. rich, but because they have something secretive that not a lot of people have, like, dude, they're so rich. Or they're Batman. Yeah. One of the two. Oh, what about, like, a like a barn swing? Oh, man. That'd be cool. Like, that would be awesome living as well. Room? Yeah. You have people just sitting on your couch. Attached to the ceiling fan. Oh, and you just swing around a carousel. You just, you know, you, no, no, no. One of those fans that they're like outside the, the big A fans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and you've, you just attach harnesses and you just like at silver dollar city on the carousel ride. Shout out Branson, Missouri. Shout out, man. There's so many cool things. You I want to know house. what the craziest thing you've either seen or you can think of putting in a house. Yeah. Please leave in the comments, comment on our Instagram post, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, anything you got, find yeah. us. This is actually really interesting. Yeah. I really want to know. And if, I mean, if you're on listening on Apple Podcasts, just yes, simply yes, drop yes. a five-star review. It's right there. It's, easy. it's just the easiest it's thing for easy. you to do. So easy. Yeah. I think this could be interesting. This could be awesome. I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say. Let us know. Let us know quick. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my yawning co-host, Cooper McCullough. <sighs> that is me. Sometimes you got to yawn it out, man. <laughs> it's late. It's late. It's about bedtime. We are old. We're getting old, man. We've graduated college. We... Uh, don't buy things like ball pit balls. Yeah. We're old and boring and reasonable. Yeah. Ah, bummer. Never lose your sense of wonder, kids. Yes. Never, ever, ever. And always be less reasonable. That's right. Shoot for the stars. Not always. Speaking of someone who shoots for the stars, today's guest is quite remarkable. His name's Ryan Campbell. Yes. He's I'm already intrigued. Are you? Yes. He's a pilot. What's a pilot? Someone a world record-breaking oh. pilot. He's an Aussie as well. He's from Down Under. Down Under. Not under the ball pits, just Down Under. Okay. Got Thank you for clarifying. Any Uzis. When Ryan Campbell was 19 years old, he set out on a world record-breaking flight where he flew solo around the world. He's the youngest man ever to do this. There's, people have done it, but he's the youngest. So he continued to fly. Once he finished this, he's incredibly famous. He moves to the States, and he's he, he continues to fly, as, as you would. And uh, a few years later, he's in a plane accident. Accident. And it's a horrible, horrible situation where he ends up surviving the plane crash, but he's now he was paralyzed from the waist down. And this doesn't stop him from flying. This doesn't stop him from continually to, do, to work, but he's in rehab for a long time. And so what our discussion is about today is his road back to where he can now walk. He walks with a limp and he's he says he he tells me he walks like a 70 year old man. But it's his path to get to where he is because doctor said he shouldn't have survived. He shouldn't be able to walk, yet he is. And he talks about his three steps to change because in life, we, we deal with change. We see it as adverse, adversity. We see it as, as difficult times, but in reality, it's change. And so he gives us three tools and how we can look at change and how we can move past it, which helped him get through this difficult time in his life. 
He's fascinating. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a fun guy to talk to with an incredible story. He'll have you on the edge of your seat the entire time. But all of us deal with change in our life. And we can either see it as something that's going to set us back or propel us forward. And as next generation leaders, we have to always see change as something that can move us forward to the ultimate goal of becoming a better version of ourselves, which is ultimately being sanctified, looking more like Jesus Christ. And so that is what he wants to wants to talk to us about. What does it look like to deal with change, to deal with adversity, to continue to push forward? Like Winston Churchill said, never, ever give up, never give in never give up. So without further ado, here's our guest today, Mr. Ryan Campbell. Well, let's get going. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for being with us and taking time out of your busy schedule to answer some questions and to, to help us grow and, and kind of tell your story. But that's where I want to start. I start by telling your story. How do you get to where you are? It's quite remarkable at the in your younger years, but kind of tell how you got to where you are today. More than welcome, mate. It's great to be here. Uh, look, it's been a wild uh, journey of ups and downs, but uh, that entire journey has revolved around uh, aviation. And it started way back when I was six years old. As you can tell from my accent, I am not from Nashville or Tennessee right. or the US. I, I grew up in a beach town uh, in Australia, a beautiful part of the world. And when I was six years old, my family, uh, my two brothers and my mum, my dad, we jumped on an airplane and we headed off to uh, an island in the Pacific for what was our uh, first overseas trip. And for my mum and dad, it's the first time they'd ever been overseas also. So we, we just set it off to a place called Vanuatu. I remember taking off out of Sydney airport in that 737 airliner and just being absolutely mesmerized as a young kid, looking out the window, amazed at uh, how many houses were in Sydney, how big the place was. Right. The fact that everyone had painted their roofs red, um, but really blown away the moment we went through the clouds. Just, I think at that age, you just don't really believe that it's hard to comprehend that you can actually soar amongst the clouds. And it was a perfect time for me to um, have the passion of aviation uh, ignited within me. And uh, we even, being prior to September 11, we even uh, were invited to meet the uh, pilots up at the cockpit. So at six years old, I was hooked. Everything was, uh, you know, to revolve around aviation in my life. And yeah. I always knew I'd learn to fly at some point. And that passion never dwindled all the way through uh, primary school, high school, all my uh, 13 years in, in uh, my Australian uh, high school uh, career uh, really revolved around flying. Yeah. And uh, it was at 14 years old that I actually started my flying lessons. Wow. So that is being young. a young guy, it is young. And, and here's the deal with this is uh, honestly, I was 13, 12, 13, 14, and I wanted to learn to fly. Everyone knew I wanted to be a pilot. I'd, I'd been saying it since I was so little since that trip. But yeah. common sense said to me that really I needed two things. I was going to need money. This was going to be expensive. Right. But I was also going to have to be old enough to do it. And I figured I'd have to, you know, learn to drive a car before I'd fly a plane. So I thought, <laughs> yeah, I'm I was going to ask, were you able to drive a car at that point? No, no, I wasn't. I, in Australia, you know, at 16, you can fly, yeah, you, know, you, can the fly you can drive with your parents, but to drive a car on your own in Australia, you have to be 17. Wow. So here I was, you know, thinking that I'd have to finish school before I could learn to fly. What happened was I sat down one day and I read the local newspaper and I saw an article in there that was all about a kid who'd flown an airplane on his own for the very first time, the day that he turned 15 
Wow. And man, I was jealous, yeah. uh, envious. I read that article. Gosh, I must have read it 20 times. And every time I get to his name, I pretend it was my name. And, and I was just envious beyond belief. So I took the whole, you know, if he can do it, why can't I approach? And yeah. I found myself two after school jobs and I saved up my money. I'd earned $45 a week working four out of the seven days after school. Hmm. And I would have, uh, I would have pretty much enough money over two weeks to go and do one hour of flying. And it was incredible for me to set a goal at such a young age to then work through my flight training. And on my 15th birthday, the first day that I legally could, I, I climbed into an airplane, I flew it all on my own. And, you know, everyone loved it. He said my mom, she was, <laughs> she was a nervous wreck, but I can imagine we've, it was incredible, you know, like to, to have that control at 15 and, and it was just out of this world and it only fueled uh, a number of things. It fueled my desire to pursue aviation further, right? but it showed me what you could do when you set a goal and you worked really hard, even just as a normal Aussie kid, I always tell anyone, you know, I'm any more laid back, I'd be lying down. I'm just, my dad was a milkman. My mom was a stay at home mom. We don't come from a wealthy family, but it was amazing what we could do if you just, you know, kind of dug right in and, and set some goals and, and got to work. So when I was 16 years old, I could fly an airplane, not only on my own, but I could take my friends flying and family flying. So you were the um, cool kid in school. Uh, well, here, here's the story. You, let you. I, I couldn't drive a car on my own and all my buddies were 17 and I was 16. So this was a deal, right? I cut a deal with them at school and it was, if you would uh, drive me from school to the airport, after class, I'll take you flying, but then you've got to drop me back home. And that was a deal. And me and my buddies, we used to fly up and down the coast and look for sharks and whales and fly around and, you know, buzz around the clouds. And it was just a dream at 16. And what a child. Come on. Yeah. But a childhood that, you know, my, my two after school jobs of washing dishes, uh, not washing dishes, sorry, my two after school jobs of working at a supermarket and washing a truck on the weekend, mm. a semi trailer, an 18 wheeler, turned yeah. into washing dishes at a restaurant. And it was one of the worst jobs I've ever had in my life. But man, <laughs> didn't it pay well? Right. And that just led to this opportunity to be able to fly. And then that drive led to a scholarship of $6,000. And, you know, I had support from the community around me because I was such a driven young kid. Mm. But here's the deal. Like I got to 17 years old and although I had a private pilot's license and I was living the dream, I wanted more. Mm. And I read another article and it was online and it was about a young kid who had just become the youngest person to fly solo around the world in a single engine airplane. And he was 23. And the record he had broken was 37. So in 2008, the world record was 37. So there really wasn't an age record in the world of flying around uh, the globe. So this so, sparks, a, sparks a goal, another goal in your mind. Yeah. And, and another age related goal to say, all right, like I'm 17 and pretty bad at maths, but right. I know I've got six years to pull this off. Hmm. And it turned out that uh, now, man, we could talk for hours on just the round the world flight planning alone, but right. um it turned out that it all happened a lot quicker than that. Now I was a kid with a dream, but I was very aware that that dream could probably, you know, the likelihood of it 
at actually eventuating were pretty slim. Mm. So I Googled, this is, this is how I learned about flying around the world. I Googled how to fly solo around the world. Wow. And I found a website called earthrounders.com and I printed off all the information and I hid it in my office desk uh, in my bedroom. And here I was a 17-year-old kid not wanting my parents, my brothers, my friends, anyone to find out that I was even thinking about this idea of flying around the world because I didn't want them to laugh at me. And the problem was at this point, there wasn't a lot of information out there. More people had gone to space and flown solo around the world in 2008. And I uh, really, I read all the articles and over and over and again for months and I Googled all there was to Google and I still wanted to do it. I still wanted to pursue it. And I ended up contacting one of the most famous Australian entrepreneurs, uh, businessmen, aviation adventurers, a guy by the name of Dick Smith how do you get in contact with such a famous guy? Well, you just Google his email address, you know, we're right. all, uh, young, we live in the modern world. And I sent an email to Dick Smith and believe it or not, he replied. He was the first person in the world to ever hear about this. And he said to me, go and find a mentor. He said, if you can find a mentor who'll support you, he said, I'll support you. So I went and found a mentor who's the second person to find out about this. Mm. Now, as these two guys jumped on board, I thought, well, I'm in a little bit of a predicament because I now have a team of three but my mum and dad don't even know. I haven't even asked them whether I can do <laughs> they don't this. Even know. Yeah, they don't know about the dream. Man, I one night I was washing the dishes, which I think helped. And I pulled out a, a folder of emails from Dick Smith, a very famous gentleman that my mum and dad had grown up with as a household name. Right. And I asked my mum and dad whether I could fly around the world. And I, they kind of supported it, but really didn't know how serious it was until I showed them those emails. Hmm. And from that point on, it was wild. I have the best parents in the world. They decided to support me. We spent two years uh, fundraising a quarter of a million dollars on a laptop computer. Wow. We planned, prepared, trained as a pilot. We uh, we literally traveled around the world trying to look for an airplane, someone who was willing to give a kid an airplane to fly um, you know, on this record attempt. And we ended up renting a single engine airplane called a Cirrus SR-22. And we it took a whole two years just to be in a position to be able to take off and attempt the record. Mm. And I'm pretty proud of, of that two years, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I can imagine. And man, it's a long story, but at the end of that two years, I, I climbed in aboard that airplane at 19 years of age. And I took off from uh, around about Sydney, Australia, and I headed Northeast over the Pacific ocean. First time I'd ever flown over water. Wow. What followed was, you know, and again, we could talk about just around the world flight for hours, but what followed was 24,000 nautical miles to 35 stops in 15 countries. A journey that took me over the world's largest oceans, uh, over glaciers and volcanoes and islands and deserts and everything you could imagine, you know, through the French Alps, between Italy and Sicily, nine hours across Saudi Arabia and diversions around Egypt due to crisis and issues and all sorts of problems in Greece and, you know, five hours of refueling in Indonesia and 60,000 foot thunderstorms icing over the North Atlantic, you know, just all the natural ups and downs that you would expect in any expedition or adventure. And I mean, that's unbelievable. <laughs> I look back now and think, why, why did I ever do that? That was right. such a silly idea. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really understand what around the world flight was. So kind of walk us through that. So you would take off. So you take off in Sydney and you go up North and then you land somewhere. And then how long would you, would you stay there for like a day? Would you sleep? Would you just fill up and keep going? What did that look like? 
It was, uh, so here's the deal is, you know, we could have done a lot faster. We, we completed the flight in 70 days and then there were 35 stops. So we had about a flight every two days. It was a long way. So to give you an idea, just to get from Hawaii to California was 15 hours nonstop in an airplane where you couldn't move from your one little seat. You couldn't get yourself turn around and on your own. That's, that's correct. So it was uh, a pretty, you know, some legs were easy. Some legs were really hard. Now we flew once every two days because I would fly the airplane. I would land the airplane and the large fuel tank that we had to uh, install inside the cockpit with me. So I had a 160 gallon bag of fuel uh, behind me in the, where the rear seat should be. Wow. That was the fuel that allowed us to cross these really long stretches of ocean. Hmm. And it was a big job to repack that when the bag deflated because the fuel was burnt. It was a big job to re, uh, repack and resort that airplane and refuel the airplane. So I never wanted to refuel the airplane on a day that I was flying. So we always landed, packed up, went, had a sleep and then woke up the next day and spent that day. Uh, and it took hours upon hours in some cases to refuel the airplane, repack the airplane. Then I'd go home and I would uh, go back to the hotel, the motel, and I would study the next day's flight plan I talked to the team. Uh, we'd do any of the media stuff that we had to do. Mm. And then I'd wake up the next day and I would tackle the next leg. And it really wasn't around the world flight. It was actually 35 A to B flights that happened right. to create a 24,000 mile circle around the globe. So that's unbelievable. And you've gotten to see some of the coolest places in the world. But what kept you going? Because I think so many people look at your story and just like what you were saying earlier, you and your buddies after school would fly up and down the coast looking for sharks and whales. And that sounds so magical and amazing and just the ideal childhood. But no one sees that you had to wash dishes for so long. You had to go to flight school for so long to get to a point where you can go 24,000 nautical miles around the world. And and keep going, never give up. So what, what kept you going through that whole process? Yeah, you're right in saying a lot of people miss that. And, and that's really cool that you, you point that out because a lot of people do see, uh, say my life or a life of, you know, someone that they look up to as, as unattainable and they don't realize that it is actually very achievable, but you have to, if you want to be willing to sacrifice a lot and man, I missed out on a lot of stuff. I missed out on a lot of my childhood kind of, you know, 17 to 20. Uh, I missed a, a lot of that kind of fun social part of your life with all your friends and, and so forth. And I really gave up a lot, you know, to, uh, to fly. But as for the round the world flight, I mean, the planning stage itself was unbelievably hard. The round the world flight stage was unbelievably hard, but what kept me going was that other people knew about it. Mm. So as soon as I went out and made it public, I was like, all right, you know, like you've put it out there now. Well, you know, you can walk, you can talk the talk, but you've got to walk the walk and, and, you know, we have to follow through. That's right. So then it become a not, one of the big lessons that I teach as a, as a keynote speaker is making big decisions in life with a simple yes or no answer. So when you find yourself in a position where, you know, I once was, should I fly around the world? Should I try this or should I not? My flying instructor said to me, stop, stop second guessing yourself. Go like step right back. Look at the big picture where you are in life, how old you are, where you want to go, what you want to do right now whether you can do it, who you have around you, assess all the factors that are part of your uh, situation and ask yourself whether or not you're going to 
pursue the round the world flight? And it's a simple yes or no answer. If you answer yes, which we did, obviously, right. you must then pursue this with 150% grit and determination and not stop unless A, it's either a success or B, you uh, have exhausted every avenue of making this work and it's just not going not gonna to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you say no, then walk away from it and never look back. You know, don't go back in, in three months and go, oh, I really probably should give that a crack again. Mm. Make it a clear-cut decision. Once you've made that big picture decision, zoom right in and yeah. start to work out the day-to-day stresses. The way in life, especially be it 2020 and COVID and a pandemic and all the stresses that we live with in our life, it's so easy to, to let all the little struggles make big decisions for you. And it's really important to be like, nope, I committed to this decision to pursue the around the world flight, or I committed this decision to start a business or whatever you want to do. And I'm going to make it happen. And it's that grit and determination, that courage and commitment that allow you to see big projects through to the end. doesn't mean it's easy. It just means that you, uh, you know, will succeed. Right. And there's so many people I think have the dreams. They have the big ideas. They know what they want to do. They want to conquer the world, but they don't have the grit and determination to follow through and to finish and to hold your word and to see, see it through what you said you would do. And I think that is so important. What sets you apart and what sets the adventure that you went on apart is that you had this absurd idea that was probably crazy. And of course your parents were thought you were probably crazy as well, but you went for it and you didn't stop until you'd finished it. And I think I commend you for that because it's amazing. So we have so much to learn from that because we, we couldn't see all the behind the scenes work, but we know that every day you got up and you, you were determined to finish it. And so you did. So, I mean, that's an amazing, amazing achievement. Um, so after that, you're kind of on the highest of high, you, you finish this, you're, you're a kind of a child phenom. If you want child, you're 19 years old and you've lived a lot of life in those 19 years, you keep flying and then you have, a, you have an accident and there's something crazy. You kind of go to the lowest of lows. So kind of talk through that, what happened there and, and, and kind of what you learn through that season? Absolutely. So, you know, the round the world flight finished, as you said, and then all these things happened after that, that would just blow your mind. I mean, I, again, normal Aussie kid anymore, lay back, I'd be lying down. And, and I was meeting Prince William and, and Prince Harry and being named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers of all time. And all of Which these. is an awesome in, title, by the way. Just like, it's something I'm so proud of, but it's, it's hard to, to wrap your head around when one of the explorers on the list of 50 is Captain Cook and he actually sailed the boat to Australia. So, you know, it's it's a very humbling thing to be a part of. But as you say, it was a life of highs. And I share those those stories not from an ego point of view. I, I hate ego. Uh, but from a, I want people and the listeners to understand that life was good. I want them to be able to stand in my shoes and go, yeah, man, this was <laughs> this was going well. Yeah. And yeah, you know, we published a book. We did all sorts of good stuff. And in a split second moment, as you say, that all changed. I was at work on a normal day. My job was to fly a 1930s vintage biplane up and down the coast of Australia, do some aerobatics. There was two people in the airplane at any one time. I was in the back seat and somebody else, the passenger was in the front. It was an open cockpit, beautiful airplane. Mm. We took off on the 28th of December, 2015. And it was a normal day at work. We had no oceans to cross, no records to break, nothing wild to achieve that day other than just a bit of fun. And as we took off out of this short grass airstrip, uh, the runway disappeared beneath the nose of the aircraft and the engine failed. Mm. 
now we were so low there was terrain below me we did everything i could in my power in in, in the space of say three or four seconds before it was all over uh, but what resulted despite my best efforts was a huge accident and one where i was lucky to survive and i was cut from the wreckage and i was flown to hospital as the only survivor therefore in a split second the very thing be it aviation that had given me everything that i had in my life my reputation my success uh, my passion my drive my happiness had been the very thing that screwed that all up in a ball and i found myself at honestly a backbreaking low and I was taken to hospital with shattered facial bones. My right ankle was basically removed. I had five breaks in my back. I was operated on immediately and woke up in a recovery ward with no movement or feeling from my waist down. Mm. So I was a complete paraplegic. And that was it. Everything had changed. And it, um, what followed was six months in hospital and a year and a half in rehab full-time. Uh, as I was, went on this wild journey, a really long and painful journey of not just learning to walk again, but learning to fly. You know, for me, walking as a very naive 22-year-old kid at this point, walking was merely a, a stepping stone on the way back to flying. Right. And I don't think I really realized how broken I was. They built me a wheelchair. It was purple with white wheels, which is all the reason you need to get out of it. And... Mm. We, I went through six months of severe uh, hospital, uh, just re- rehab, rehabilitation. It just, it was just wild. It was honestly, and I know we don't have all day, but uh, for those listeners who, who, which is probably everyone who don't know, don't know my story, I'm actually walking, and throughout that six months and the next year and a half in rehab we went from no movement or feeling from the waist down to a flicker of a toe, a little bit of a twitch of a muscle and a little bit of sensation to come back. And I went from, you know, trying to move my legs a little bit to eventually standing on a walking frame for a few seconds at a time and then standing for longer and then starting to shuffle with the physiotherapist moving physically, grabbing my ankles and moving my feet. Uh, it was this long journey of, having my body wake up and trying to determine what my maximum potential was fast forward to where I am now. I'm plateaued. I'm, I'm not getting any better, uh, but I do walk. I look like I've had a few too many Tennessee whiskeys. <laughs> I can't push my feet forward. I can't stand up on my toes. I have very little control or strength in my feet whatsoever. I can't feel my feet. I have no calf muscles. I can't feel the backs of my legs. I have no glute muscles. Um, I lost a, I was, I was in the hangar the other day working on an old car and I lost a drill. I lost the whole, it was a Ryobi full-size drill. I lost it. I couldn't find it anywhere. And my buddy looked at me and I was sitting on it and I had absolutely no idea that, you know, this should be the most uncomfortable thing in the world, but I have no glute muscles and I can't feel where I sit. So, you know, I don't have any internal systems in my body. They're, they're all gone. And I have a life that is very permanently damaged, but, I was able to recover to a point where I am able to do a lot of things that we never thought I would do. So that's walking and even flying. I fly modified airplanes now and I even went as an incomplete paraplegic and gained my commercial helicopter license having never flown a helicopter. So um, 
a really long, wild journey to get to where I am today, for sure. Yeah, and that's amazing. And I think the word that you described it in there is so fascinating is that you call it a journey. And in the same sense that you call the 24,000 nautical miles around the world a journey, you considered this adversity or this valley or this this season that you found in, it was a journey. And so how 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 can you get to that perspective to where instead of just being so down on yourself and saying, oh, woe is me to where I'm now on my back and I can't move my legs. But you say, no, this is a journey that I get to go on. This is my next adventure. I'm, I'm one of the 50 most adventurous people in Australian history. And now this, this season of adversity is a journey. How did you get to that perspective? Well, it, it, in the beginning, it wasn't easy. I was down and I was depressed and I was sad and, you know, poor me, I was grateful to be breathing, but that was about it. And I laid in bed for a very long time and I turned into a a newborn baby. I had nothing in my body worked. It was just a, a really terrible time when they finally were able to lift me out of the bed and place me in a wheelchair, they wheeled me down to a spinal rehabilitation gym. And it was where the the rehabilitation physiotherapists were working with quadriplegics and paraplegics to see, you know, where we could all get our bodies back to what was our maximum potential is, is the word uh, that I use. They lifted me out of the wheelchair and they literally slung me out, which is a really non flattering maneuver. And they laid me down on this bed and they told me my first challenge of spinal rehab uh, in the gym was going to be to learn to roll over again. And, you know, I was keen and eager, even though I was feeling sorry for myself for a challenge. I loved a challenge. So I looked at my chunky legs. I thought if I could just lift this leg up and place it over that leg and I could twist the bottom half of my body and then I could grab the side of the table with my arms and I could pull and, you know, I'd roll over onto my stomach and I'd be victorious and everyone would be happy and you know, life would be good. And, I did that. I, I crossed my legs and I, I pulled my body across. And as I ended up on my left side, I was in so much pain from the breaks in my back that I didn't know what to do. And I just froze. And my right arm was all twisted as I lay there. And I happened to look through a small hole under my elbow and, and my life changed in a split second. Mm. What I saw through that hole was a guy called Ben. Uh, ben was a quadriplegic. He'd fallen over, uh, mopping, he slipped over, mopping his girlfriend's floor. Uh, he'd hit his head, broken his neck. He had no movement or feeling below his chest, very, very little movement in his arms and his hands. And uh, early 30s, you know, this, this guy was sitting in his big wheelchair and he was moving his arms in and out just a few inches at a time. And when I looked up at Ben, he was just staring at me. And here I was feeling sorry for myself. I was having a bad day. I was having a bad month. And as soon as I saw him look at me, I realized in that moment what Ben would have given for just one chance at rolling over. Mm. And I felt like the worst human on the face of the planet. <laughs> and I thought it changed everything. Like they took me back to the ward and they put me back in bed. My body was resting and my mind was racing at a million miles an hour. And, and I knew I had to remember that moment, how I felt when I looked at Ben. And I knew it was that feeling, even though I found it hard to explain, that I would need to hold on to and remember as time went on. And that was a feeling I would need to draw on when I had a really bad day. Mm. So I come up with this concept where I took all the moments that I had in my life like that, these easily forgettable moments. I converted them into tools and then I placed them into what was called a mindset toolbox. It's my belief we're all born with an empty toolbox. It's right. our job to fill it with tools, tools that we have access to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, tools that we can use to help us get through life, to navigate the change, challenge, crisis and adversity that we are all going to face. It's, 
adversity is a byproduct of breathing. Yeah. You know, that's just part of life. So, you know, we have to prepare ourselves and better equip ourselves to be more resilient, more change uh, ready, uh, you know, equipped to, to tackle life. And, and this year is a perfect example of it. Mm. What yeah, Ben taught so me that day was to take easily forgettable moments, convert them to tools and place them in an unforgettable drawer. And that's what I did. I continued all throughout Spine Award uh, with this uh, mindset of finding new tools, placing them in that toolbox. I uh, realized in that moment with Ben that I was in fact lucky to be a paraplegic. And although it, although it didn't fix my problems, it helped me above the shoulders. And I, I truly believe life is one and lost above the shoulders. It helped me above the shoulders. It helped me put perspective onto what was wrong with me. It helped me look at adversity as, yes, that was part of my reality. And no, it wasn't my fault. I didn't ask to be here, but I'm responsible. I'm responsible for how I react. And man, we could talk all day, but I I sat across the table at breakfast one morning. The day that I left the hospital, I sat across from a gentleman who uh, had an arm and a leg missing. He's one of the fittest men I've ever seen in my life. His name is Paul DeGelder. He's he's now here in the US. You'll see him on Shark Week all the time. Yeah. He, He was attacked by a shark and he lost his arm and his leg. And he sat across the table from me and he said, sink or swim, mate, sink or swim. And I didn't have to ask him what that meant because I knew at one point in his life, he chose to swim, but he actually literally chose to swim. Yeah. And, and I wasn't going to sink. So, you know, adversity is an opportunity. If that's the one thing you take from this today, adversity is an opportunity. I was given a, a chance and an opportunity at 21, 22 to compare highs higher than what most people will experience in their lives and a low lower than what a lot of people experience in their lives or by the age of 21, 22. And that comparison led to the understanding that adversity is where we learn our lessons. It's what makes us who we are. Right. Adversity is an opportunity, mm. but adversity alone is not an opportunity. You, you have to partner adversity with the knowledge and the understanding of how you can utilize it use it in a way, convert it to tools, place it in your toolbox and help use adversity and change to, as I say, build a better future. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's amazing. Adversity is an opportunity to grow. And that's when we learn our most valuable life lessons. It's not whenever we we are at the top of the mountain. It's when we're at the lowest of the valley, we're at the lowest of the adversity. And, and, it's, it's, it's an amazing journey, but you have to see it as a journey. You also have to see it as change because when you went from walking, being, being able to run and fly to not being able to roll over on that table that day, it was simply just a change in your life. And you have to see it that way. And that's kind of what you now speak on and what your, your life is built on now is how to lead and change and how to go through change. And you have a three-step method that you go about that. So would you mind walking us through that three-step method of, of change? Hundred percent, and and we call the three step checklist to navigating change one of the simplest ways and and the most uh, implementable ways you can, you can do this straight away. Uh, it's an unbelievable way to place yourself in a more change and challenge ready mindset. This three step checklist will not solve your problems, and here's why: there is nothing out there that will solve all your problems. If if right. I knew what that golden nugget was, I'd be on my yacht somewhere in the islands drinking a margarita. You know. <laughs> It's that just doesn't exist in life. Yeah. This places you in a more change and challenge ready mindset. It's so important. 
the three-step checklist is actually my three favorite tools from my mindset toolbox. Here's the deal. I filled my mindset toolbox. You know, Ben helped me create it. I spent six months in hospital, a year and a half in rehab, filling that toolbox. Man, I had one of the most overflowing, heavy to move toolboxes in the world. I was so unbelievably lucky to have that. I had so many people help me fill it. But I realized that even in a moment of adversity, that stress, uncertainty, that fear, in that moment, it's really hard to reach even into a full toolbox and pull out the right tools. Right. So I took my three favorite tools, I turned it into a checklist. Why a checklist? Because an, a pilot, when he flies an airplane, when something goes wrong, a red light flashes or a warning buzzer sounds, that pilot doesn't simply uh, push random buttons and pull random levers despite what you see on the movies. Right, that pilot uses a systematic approach to overcome that problem. They use a checklist. They pull out a checklist, which is a little booklet of potential predetermined problems with, you know, solutions. And they work through that checklist item by item without skipping any, make sure making sure they complete all of them. And end after that checklist is finished in what is hopefully a potential solution. I wanted to create a checklist not for an airplane, but for life. So I chose gratitude, confidence and resilience. That's the three steps, gratitude, confidence, and resilience. Anytime you're up against a challenge, anytime you're having a bad day, anytime you're just a little bit down, you're not sure where to move, you're not sure what the next step is, apply this checklist, gratitude, confidence, and resilience. The first step, gratitude. We must find something to be thankful for in our situation before we begin to navigate our way through it. Even before we start to climb the mountain, you got to find something to be thankful for. I found gratitude in the fact that I was a paraplegic and not a quadriplegic. Mm. When I looked at Ben, Ben made me realize that I was lucky to be a paraplegic. I was lucky to have what I had functioning as opposed to focusing on what I had lost. Mm. I had an opportunity to adapt and therefore overcome. I was grateful to be a paraplegic. That gratitude that you can find before you begin to navigate your problem is enough to shrink that mountain before you even begin to climb it. So find gratitude straight away. If you don't think there's any to, anything to be thankful for, you're simply not thinking hard enough. That's the a great way to step. think about it too, is, is shrinking the mountain before you climb it is just simply gratitude. And I think gratitude is what separates happy people from unhappy people. And it's all, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. 100%. And if you can find happiness in your situation, you instantly find that joy to continue forward and to not give up, but keep going. Second step. I, I agree. And I will say, pick up your iPhone and, and, you know, we have the world of, you know, the world's knowledge in the palm of our hand. Yeah. Have a look at a different country that lives a different lifestyle to you. Look at the happy smiling faces in a village in Africa, you know, who don't have the best Wi-Fi, who don't have the latest and greatest iPhone, you know, look around the world, find other people who are living in a really grateful, thankful way and try and, you know, emulate that. The right. second step, once we've find, we've found gratitude, we've shrunk that mountain. Now you got to, you got to get to work now. Well, the second step's confident. We must have confidence in our ability to overcome a problem, right? To, to achieve, to succeed. We have to have confidence. Too many people want to know the entire way that their journey is going to play out from here to the end goal, the resolution, the solution. Well, that's just not how life works, right? I'd love to tell you when COVID will be over, but again, I, I can't. Therefore, why I don't have a yacht in the islands. But what we need to do instead of trying to focus on the entire process is simply kind of zoom out and look at the big picture, get an idea of where you want to go, but then decide on what the next step is. Lock in that next step. Zoom back in, decide on what it's going to be, lock it in and get to work. And once you've achieved that next step, you know what there is after that? Well, it's another next step. That was a lesson that I learned in the planning of the Around the World flight. But I tell you what, I pulled that lesson back out of my toolbox and I used it when I was learning to walk again because there's nothing more important when you're learning to walk than the next step, quite literally. 
So find confidence in your ability to get to work, to achieve, succeed and overcome by locking the next step. So you've found gratitude, you've shrunk the mountain, you've locked in the next step, you're now getting to work. The third step, and arguably probably one of the, the most important, is resiliency. Mm. You've got to be resilient, right? There is no golden nugget. We've said it multiple times to solve all, all, all of life's problems. Adversity is a byproduct of breathing. You have experienced adversity up until this point in your life, guaranteed. And you know what? You're going to experience more. So you need to be resilient. It's one of the most important traits in being successful and overcoming and thriving. So how do we be resilient, right? That's the question. Right. We be resilient by anticipating the need to adapt, mm. right? Yeah. You must look forward between now and your end goal, your resolution solution, and you must understand that there will be a whole bunch of obstacles on that pathway that you are going to have to jump left or right to get around. That's just fact. Yeah. By understanding that and accepting that and then looking ahead at potential problems, a bit like a checklist creator or a checklist writer, if you look forward at the potential problems and you think about potential solutions, when those problems, if they do uh, arrive, when they arrive at your doorstep, you're not in shock. Like that shock factor is taken away. When the shock factor is taken away, those obstacles, instead of being a roadblock, they just become part of the process. Right. We just have to accept it that it is what it is, man. If if it was easy, anyone would do it. It doesn't matter whether it's learning to walk. It doesn't matter whether it's building a mindset toolbox that's absolutely killer, building a business, you know, growing a YouTube channel, whatever you want to do in life, you know, flying around the world, climbing a mountain. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Mm. Find gratitude, find confidence, find resilience. It's not here to solve your problems. It's just going to put you in a way better mindset to be able to tackle life. And at the end of the day that's where we win is above our shoulders. It's in our mindset. So build that toolbox, create your own checklist, implement them, use them, and uh, you'll be blown away at uh, how strong and how resilient you can be. I mean, I love it. That's, that's what you need right there. Cause just like you said, adversity is a byproduct of breathing and it is coming whether you like it or not. We couldn't have stopped this virus from coming. We couldn't have stopped this, the struggles from our world and from our personal lives, but we know they're coming and then we owe it to our future self to get ready for it. And, and then once we are in there, we have that toolbox, we, we face something uh, that's hitting us hard and we can look at it with gratitude, confidence and resilience. Then we can continue to push forward and we can never, ever give up. I think your story is incredibly inspiring and incredibly amazing. And it starts with something amazing you did, but then also how you walked through something with those three steps. And then now you get to share that with the rest of the world and because everyone else around you will go through something like that. So Ryan, I really commend you on what you're doing and, and the stories you get to tell and the way you get to teach it. I want to ask you just one more question. How we like in, in all our interviews is what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Or in this case, maybe your 19 year old self who was about to set off on a, a nautical journey across the world. But what advice would you give to yourself? I would love to be able to go back and let that guy know as he flew around the world and was working through the adversity and all the challenges that he needed to convert those moments to tools Mm. and a learning opportunity not harnessed is an opportunity lost a learning opportunity that's converted to a tool and placed into a mindset toolbox or some form of tangible way to remember it so that we can use it. Well, that's just my way, my tangible way uh, to build experience and build experience quickly because it's experience that's going to allow us to do more, to overcome more, to grow, to be better. 
And I would love to go back to that kid and say, Hey man, you know, like grab these challenges. Don't forget them, store them. You know, life is going to give you a whole lot more uh, good and bad than what this round the world flood is right now. So equip yourself, be ready and um, share that way of thinking with as many people as possible. Mm, I love that. I love just the idea of converting moments to tools and that moments that you don't learn from you miss. And I think our generation and our people just want to just sprint or run through problems or run through adversity and get through it as fast as we can. And, and yeah, that's part of being resilient and getting through an, a problem, but there's so much to be learned from an issue that if you walk through an issue, if you walk through adversity, you're able to squeeze every bit of learning, every bit of knowledge, every bit of experience out of that, which will make you stronger, better as you go on and you, you push through the adversity. So take everything you can convert moments into tools, be thankful, be confident, be resilient and never, ever give up. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure getting to talk to you. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on.